This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day when a great new member has officially been welcomed to the NATO alliance. The nation of Finland. Sweden is coming soon. Uh, it's also a great uh, day for this greatest nation when uh, Newsweek reports that Russia loses four tanks, 11 APVs, and 20 artillery systems in a day. That would be today in Ukraine. Uh, the tide of battle turned. Uh, NATO uh, properly celebrated as perhaps the most successful military alliance, uh, diplomatic alliance, in all of human history. Okay, well, what's been more successful in terms of a long-time alliance. That's all the theme in the latest uh, piece by, uh, it appeared at the Hoover Institution, uh, their website. It's a piece by my friend Ralph Peters, who is the author of 29 books, including works on strategy and military affairs, as well as best-selling and prize-winning novels often about the Civil War. Those novels stirring and informative and inspiring, actually. He's published more than a thousand essays, articles, and columns as a U.S. Army enlisted man and then later officer, uh, rank of lieutenant colonel with which he retired. He served in infantry and military intelligence units before becoming a foreign area officer and global scout. Uh, Ralph Peters' new piece is posted on our website at michaelmedved.com. It's uh, entitled NATO, The Comeback Kid Who Never Left. Uh, so when you say NATO never left, what you're basically saying is there hasn't been a time when NATO hasn't been really a gift to all of humanity and a particular gift to the United States of America. Yeah, well, if you include uh, Vladimir Putin in humanity, well, it's probably not a gift to him. But truly, <laughs> you know, Michael, well, sometimes we all have to, we get caught up in the day-to-day -day rush, the headlines of the day, the news of the day. But to really understand history and the long arcs, sometimes you have to stand back and look at, at decades and generations or even longer. Now, NATO is a product, you know, basically, basically it sounded less than a decade really after the end of World War II, the initial stirrings. And it's, it's, it's never come apart. It's had good decades and weaker decades. Sometimes it's popular, sometimes it's less popular with the population. Uh, American isolationists complain about, oh, the Europeans don't pull their weight. And we, if you just stand back for a moment, you realize, argue, we're arguing about trivialities. The point is, there has not been a major war in Europe until this one in Ukraine, and even that's not World War standards. Uh, and it's because of NATO, because NATO existed. Far from being a ripoff of the American taxpayer, the money that's gone into to NATO over the decades and now generations has kept the peace. You think peace is expensive? Try war. I mean, you're getting a small taste of it right now in Ukraine. War consumes. It doesn't produce. It consumes. It produces casualties, if you want to call that consumption. Uh, rather production. So, Michael, the the proof is in the dog that didn't bark. The wars that didn't happen after 1945 in Europe. And in 1990s, of course, we saw conflicts in the Balkans. Not, at the time, none of those warring states 
were members of NATO. Since they, some, such as Slovenia, Croatia, have become members of NATO, things have quieted down considerably. So not only was NATO and is not only was it a bulwark in the Cold War against the Soviet Union, uh, that NATO had a, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, NATO, the whole, you know, I'd say that's the holy trinity of defeating the Soviet Union. But not only that, it has kept the peace in Europe. It's, it's brought Europe together. Between that and the EU, which is also a bit vilified sometimes by American isolationists, between that, this blood-soaked continent of Europe that has generated more death and destruction throughout history than any other continent, that continent has been at peace for the longest period of time in its known history. We're talking thousands of years. Charlemagne, who's the... It's curious to pick Charlemagne as the lead figure, the symbolic figure for the European Union, when in Charlemagne's long reign, Europe was at peace for one single year. So the bottom line of this, Michael, NATO is a bargain. You know, people running for office can yell and scream, and, oh, my God, you know, we don't, we're out of toilet paper in the state prison, and we're sending money to those rich Europeans. Look, peace is precious. NATO has kept the peace. Right now it is protecting freedom and democracy, and not a single NATO life has been lost in Ukraine. I mean, it's remarkable. The cohesiveness, and, and credit to Biden on this one, you gotta, you got to be fair. Uh, we've done a tremendous job of keeping this alliance together, going step by step, bringing people along the way Franklin Roosevelt did before Pearl Harbor. Um, you've got to get the public used to certain new ideas, especially when demagogues are preaching. Bottom line, NATO, big bargain, and anybody who thinks otherwise, Show me the numbers, dude. Okay, let me ask you about numbers for a moment. I yesterday, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I I know is not your favorite member of Congress, uh, spoke uh, before on the House floor and introduced an amendment to the uh, military spending bill, the military authorization bill, uh, that would immediately cut off uh, all funds for Ukraine. And uh, I, I was, <laughs> I was highly critical and derisive about Marjorie Taylor Greene, and uh, somebody wrote in to me, and said, uh, "Well, what you're saying about Congressman Greene is it occurred to you that she is representing her constituents, and her constituents in rural Georgia. How do they benefit from us sending money to Ukraine?" instead of sending money to make life better in that congressional district. Uh, what would be, Ralph Peters, your response to that challenge? Well, the Ukraine war is just a year and a half old. Uh, how much money was, were, were, Demo- were congressmen sending to that district before the war? It's not like we've suddenly robbed America's poor uh, or, or created another million homeless uh, because we're helping Ukraine. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I'm sure she does represent some of her constituents, not all of them. And certainly, um, again, if, if you, do you really, does she really want to rescue Vladimir Putin? Vladimir Putin's on the ropes. Does she really condone the mass rapes, the torture, the disfiguring, the cold-blooded executions, the murders, the overall invasion? Does Marjorie Taylor Greene think that's okay? If you look at what we have contributed to Ukraine in financial terms, compared to the multi-trillion dollars we go through every year, uh, it's it's peanuts. 
Now, it's important to Ukraine. It's keeping them alive. It's defeating Vladimir Putin. But what's really striking is how little we and NATO have given in, in absolute terms and how much Ukraine has done with that relatively little. I mean, it sounds generous to us. These people are fighting for their lives, and they're making max use out of everything. They're even improving on the tactics and the way the U.S. has used uh, a number of its own weapon systems. So I'd say it's, it's not either or, either help, help Americans or help Ukrainians. It's help Ukrainians, which helps Americans, because guess what? Your sons and daughters don't have to go to war in Eastern Europe. And by the way, under the NATO Article 5, if a NATO country is attacked, we're all in it. So beating Putin, turning the tide against totalitarians in Ukraine is important. Now, as far as Ms. Green, uh, Congresswoman Green goes, she is certainly entitled to her opinion. But it would be nice if she at least learned where Ukraine is on a map. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually in one of the worst positions in the world when you look at some of its neighbors and its history with its neighbors. But now I'm making the most of that. Nick Kristoff has a piece today in uh, the New York Times where he says, too often we think we've sacrificed for the Ukrainians. In fact, it's the other way around. Uh, the Ukrainians are sacrificing for us. We'll get back to that with more. The uh, new piece by Ralph Peters about NATO and about the value of NATO, the comeback kid who never left, is so extraordinarily well written and such a pleasure to read. Uh, for instance, he, uh, he writes that uh, then in the winter of 2022, Putin's bloodthirsty megalomania became impossible for anyone but paid hirelings to deny and NATO proved to be the indispensable actor. Um, at, Ralph, in terms of the current concerns, which are very real, and I know you share them, about China seeming to encourage uh, even the prospect of war with the United States, with uh, the ever-present prospect of war between North and South Korea, uh, with the the difficulties that we have in Asia, with China particularly, uh, clearly much greater economy and probably a much more formidable military right now than the Russians could field. Uh, the big argument against the Ukraine war, at least in some quarters, is that it's the wrong focus, that we shouldn't be focused on the broken down Russian military. We should be focused on the up and coming Chinese, to which you say. It's not just about the Russian bro the broken down Russian military, which is still perfectly capable of killing innocent men, women and children, by the way. Um, this is about a, a, a global struggle of which Ukraine is the bloodiest part at the moment. And Russia is the only one who's re the only major country that has recently invaded a neighbor. Others may get around to it. But the threats in East Asia are real, they're serious, but they are potential threats. Ukraine is now. And again, this is a global struggle, whether we like it or not, uh, between democracy, Western values, and I'll use that politically correct incorrect term, Western values, freedom, democracy, individual rights, um, 
it's a struggle between that and the reinvention by Xi and Putin and others of totalitarianism, the idea that people should not be able to decide anything for themselves, that it's all up to the state. And we're all in this. Uh, to me, it's not a shooting war. There are many kinds of war. But to say that we, oh, we can't deal with Ukraine, which is it's just not costing us that much, certainly no blood, say we can't do that because we have to worry about China is disingenuous at best. Michael, that is like saying that, oh, you know, we might have lung cancer, so we're not going to worry about the prostate cancer. We'll let, we'll let that go for now. No, no. You take care of all the cancer, and you, you do whatever you attack the cancer that's most virulent first, the, the immediate cancer. And Putin has been a cancer. The war in Ukraine, this one-sided, barbaric, black and white war, there's no, there's no gray area here. It's all Russia bad, Ukraine good. And if, you, if people can't see that, if they refuse to see it, then I, then I have to start worrying about the American population. I mean, we're a raucous people. We argue. We, we've never been perfectly unified. We fought a, a major civil war, of course. Um, but we pulled together when the chips were down. And the one thing that worries me today is that people are so focused on getting reelected. I don't care which party. That they're in, ignoring, to a painful extent, the good of the country. It's not even about the good of the party anymore. It's about good of the good of me, me, me. And it should be us, us, us. We, 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 we the people. And we've never been a perfect country. We've never had a perfect Congress. But a little bit of personal responsibility, professionalism, and patriotism, not shouting red hat or black hat patriotism, but the kind of patriotism that involves being a good citizen every day learning about the candidates you're voting for, making your own decisions, not following a demagogue left or right, but taking advantage of the precious rights this country gives us and which we take for granted every single day. So we may, we may not like the war in Ukraine. I don't like it. But by God, the Ukrainians are fighting our fight. And at least we can do is throw them a couple of bullets and packets of sea rations or MREs or whatever they're eating nowadays. You know, it's you're stated so beautifully, and your arguments are so unanswerable. Uh, I know that you're not likely to become a candidate for public office, but among those people who are seeking the U.S. presidency, is there anyone that that you hear who is speaking in uh, terms that you would recognize or that would echo the clarity of the case that you're making? You know, there are people out there that can do it. And although he and I certainly would not agree on every point, Vice President Pence does have experience. I believe he is a man who attempts to show sound judgment. He was in a difficult position in the last administration. And I am not eager to vote for, for uh, Vice President Pence. But he's one person I could vote for because of all of them, and there are other good ones too, but... He believes in America. When the chips were down, he chose the Constitution. It made him unpopular with a lot of guys. But I, be, I will support... I don't have to agree with somebody 100%. They don't have to pass a fitness test. I want a, an ethical man and woman who generally loves this country, or at least likes the Constitution a little bit better than he likes himself or herself. 
Uh, there, it's so funny that there's a, a column by Joseph Epstein uh, in uh, the Wall Street Journal today uh, where he's saying that I find I wish neither our 45th nor our 46th president well. Mr. Trump, who comes across so bold, and Joe Biden, who wishes to seem so sly, strike me as roughly equal in their depravity. I think of one of the, uh, the one as the Manchurian cantaloupe and the other as the old gaffer. Schadenfreude, the pleasure found in the fall of the mighty, isn't something I have often felt, but I sense a strong strain of it in connection with their careers, whose falls I eagerly await. And he goes on to talk about the yearning for people of character. And he suggests that the, uh, one of the last people of character who actually ran the United States of America was President George Herbert Walker Bush. But that is a different story. Uh, we are out of time with Ralph Peters. It always goes quickly. Uh, author of 29 books, including his um, most recent novel, Hell or Richmond, a gritty portrayal of Grant's 1864 Overland Campaign. Amazing writing, as always, and uh, Godspeed to you, and have a wonderful weekend coming up, Ralph Peters. Coming back on The Medved Show, more about why we need an FBI and more. Are you feeling tired? On The uh, Michael Medved Show, uh, I mentioned before that there are a couple of reminders in the news today. Uh, after those hearings yesterday by the House Judiciary Committee featuring uh, Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, th there are a couple of stories that indicate why we need an FBI and why the people who work for the FBI are overwhelmingly uh, patriotic, uh, decent, heroic Americans who are doing the most important work in the world. And uh, first story is from the Wall Street Journal under the headline, A Guilty Plea Over Anti-Semitic Threat. And uh, the story, Dateline, New Jersey, a man admitted posting a broad online threat that spurred heightened security at synagogues and Jewish schools, including, by the way, preschools, in the New Jersey area uh, last year. Omar Al-Khatul, who's 19 years old, of Sayreville, pleaded guilty yesterday to transmitting a threat to interstate and foreign commerce. He faces up to five years in prison when he's going to be sentenced November 14th. Federal prosecutors have said Al-Khatul expressed hatred of Jews and admitted posting online that, quote, God cursed the Jewish people and God should burn gay people. He also told investigators he had researched how to obtain a gun, shooting ranges, and mass shootings, but in the days before sh uh, posting his threat, he was about 50-50 on whether he would actually go through with carrying out his planned attacks. The FBI issued a straight-wide alert on November 3rd and announced a suspect had been identified the next day. Authorities have said they didn't believe that Al-Khatul had the means to carry out 
his specific attacks. But the idea of before he has a chance to carry out the attacks, going after an individual like that. And, and then there's another story. Uh, and uh, the headline here, this is from Associated Press, is Capitol Riot Suspect Arrested Near Obama's Home to Be Jailed Until Trial? And this has a local connection, too. A man charged in the Capitol riot who had guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his van when he was arrested near former President Barack Obama's Washington home will remain in jail while he awaits trial, a federal magistrate judge ruled Wednesday. U.S. Magistrate Judge Azia Afaruqui uh, agreed with federal prosecutors that Taylor Toronto represents a danger to the community if he is released. Toronto was arrested June 29th after prosecutors say he showed up near Obama's home on the same day that former President Donald Trump posted on his social media platform what he claimed was Obama's home address. Prosecutors detailed a litany of what they said were examples of Toronto's erratic behavior before his arrest, including threatening statements about House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and claims on his YouTube live stream that he intended to blow up the National Institute of Standards and Technology in suburban Maryland. Toronto 37 is charged with misdemeanor offenses in the Capitol riot. Prosecutors say he joined the crush of people who broke into the building and he made his way to the entrance of the Speaker's lobby outside the House chamber. Prosecutors have indicated they could bring additional charges. Toronto is a Navy veteran who experienced significant trauma from serving in Iraq. Public defender Catherine Guevara told the judge she said Toronto was driving a combat vehicle on a convoy that was hit by enemy missiles. The judge expressed sympathy for Toronto, saying he deserved to get more help, coping with the toll of his military service, and praised him for seeking treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Toronto's lawyers said that her client was talking about tunnels near Obama's home in a joking manner because the subject had been fodder for conspiracy theories. She said in court papers that comments he made about getting the shot or the angle while near Obama's house were only in reference to the live stream video he was taking at the time. Guevara said in court that Toronto was attacked and injured on Tuesday by other inmates in the wing of the Washington jail where January 6th defendants are detained while awaiting trial. She did not elaborate on the circumstances of the attack. Prosecutors said that the day he was arrested, Toronto reposted a truth social post from Trump containing what Trump said was Obama's home address. Why would President Trump do that? Why is that okay? In a post on Telegram, Toronto wrote, We got these losers surrounded. See you in hell, Podestas and Obamas. That's a reference to John Podesta, former chair of the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. While threatening on YouTube in the neighborhood, while live streaming, pardon me, on YouTube in the neighborhood, Toronto told followers that he was looking for entrance points, was going to find a way to the tunnels underneath Obama's homes, and wanted to get a good angle on a shot. Uh, officials said that he was spotted by law enforcement a few blocks 
from Obama's home and fled, though he was chased by Secret Service officers. Um, look, the idea that uh, he was well-armed, that he had several weapons and many rounds of ammunition, if this guy was uh, already uh, convicted uh, and, and of being uh, uh, part of the Capitol riot and uh, being involved with storming the Capitol building, and if he was diagnosed as having psychiatric problems related to his service in the U.S. military, isn't this exactly the kind of candidate uh, you want to stay away from uh, serious weapons? And speaking of serious weapons, uh, there's a piece by Mike Pence, who's been mentioned several times, both in a very flattering way, by our recent guests, uh, only weapons can end the Ukraine war. Uh, Mike Pence writes, I recently traveled to Kiev to meet with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. I can report that what Russian troops are doing to Ukrainians is not just war, it is evil. After my visit, I am more resolved than ever in my belief that it is in America's national interest to give the Ukrainian military the support it needs to repel Russia. In Ukraine, it is clear that Mr. Biden has no plan other than committing America to a new forever war, running up a costly tab of Ukrainian lives and money that neither the U.S. nor Ukraine can afford to pay. He has said we will support Ukraine as long as it takes, but the truth is that it shouldn't take very long. Under Mr. Biden's leadership, writes Mike Pence, uh, we have been far too slow in doling out military aid to Ukraine which has prevented its forces from capitalizing on earlier routes of Russian troops. His hesitancy allows time to be used as a weapon against the Ukrainians. As he vacillates, Russia regroups and digs in deeper, ensuring a longer, costlier, and deadlier war. Today, our highest goal for Ukraine must be for the restoration of peace as quickly as possible, and the fastest path to peace is a Ukrainian victory. We must provide Ukraine with the strength needed to secure peace, writes the former vice president. Uh, Mr. Biden should send Abrams tanks, F-16s, and more long-range artillery shells immediately. The goal isn't simply to give Ukraine what it needs to regain territory taken over decades, but to, to deter, deter future strikes from Russia. Uh, meanwhile, what caused inflation? One of the smartest um, financial minds in America, and somebody who keeps emerging in conversation as a potential candidate for president, has an answer. It's a quick one. We'll get to it coming up on The Medved Show. Michael Medved Show, uh, Jamie Dimon is the uh, chief guy over at J.P. Morgan Chase. He's the CEO. And uh, people keep talking about, well, why doesn't Jamie Dimon run for president? Well, <laughs> uh, I think he's uh, got a lot on his plate handling his company right now. But uh, he spoke um, candidly 
and illuminatingly about one of the problems with Bidenomics, uh, clip nine. Do you think Bidenomics has been a success? God, it's a tough question to answer. It shouldn't be political, it should be purely economic. And also the fiscal spending, $5 trillion of excess fiscal spending over two years, some to counter COVID, but some is far more in excess of that, is causing the inflation. Okay, that's pretty direct. And uh, it seems to me what would be a profound argument against Bidenomics, uh, certainly in the eyes of most Americans. Uh, speaking in the eyes of most Americans, remember the whole issue of the cocaine in the White House? Uh, officials have now said uh, they are not able to single out a person of interest because of the lack of physical evidence. The cocaine found on July 2nd was discovered inside a receptacle used to temporarily store electronic and personal devices prior to entering the West Wing, the Secret Service said this morning. Uh, the statement said that investigators conducted a methodical review of security systems and protocols and trying to figure out how the cocaine entered the White House. Lab results that were returned yesterday revealed insufficient uh, DNA was present uh, for investigative comparisons. In other words, they went through this small amount of cocaine uh, looking to see who had touched it, who had snorted it, if they had any DNA or enough DNA to try to figure out who this might be. Uh, they, uh, that was insufficient. Therefore, the Secret Service is not able to compare evidence against the known pool of individuals the uh, Secret Service released the statement on Thursday, shortly after officials briefed members of Congress on the investigation. Representative Tim Burchett, who's a Republican of Tennessee, told uh, reporters that lawmakers were informed that less than one gram of cocaine was actually found. Uh, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre scolded New York Post reporter Caitlin Dumbas for asking the press secretary if she could say once and for all whether or not the cocaine belonged to the Biden family. Uh, Jean-Pierre claimed she hadn't been avoiding the question and that she had, in fact, exhaustively answered questions about the situation. You know, there has been some irresponsible reporting about the family, and so I've got to call that out there, and I have been very clear. I was cleared here two days ago when talking about this over and over and over again as I was being asked the question. As you know, and media outlets reported this, the Biden family was not here. They were not here. They were at Camp David. Well, they say in National Review, they actually left for Camp David at 6.30 p.m. So is it impossible that the cocaine had any connection with the Biden family, particularly one member who's had a strong connection with cocaine in the past? Uh, it has not been uh, completely ruled out. Uh, Representative Raskin, uh, you remember him from the uh, president's second impeachment, Jamie Raskin, was on the uh, speaking on the White House cocaine investigation. And uh, here's what he had to say about the latest development of not having any suspect ID'd as a, uh, an individual carrying that cocaine into the executive mansion. Clip 12. 
So uh, I'm satisfied that the Secret Service and the White House are on top of it. You know, I was reading a, a book about Lincoln recently, and um, anybody in Washington could just walk right into Lincoln's White House, go directly in and try to find the president and talk to him. And obviously, we're in a very different security environment than that. Um, but I don't know how many people would want to go to the White House if they were going to be administering a drug test on the way in, which is what some of my colleagues have suggested. You know, some people are saying everybody should be drug tested on the way into the White House. And, uh, you know, these are the same people who are opposed to COVID-19 tests. So I, I don't see a lot of coherence in um, the criticism. Uh, a drug test for going into the White House. It's already, when you do go into the White House, and I've had this experience many times because I have been honored to be a visitor to the White House. Um, but the idea that they, they do go over visitors fairly carefully and you go through a metal detector, I don't know if there is a mechanical way of uh, detecting uh, illicit drugs the same way there is of detecting weapons, but obviously that would uh, be appropriate in these circumstances. Will Hurd, who I'm eager to have on the show, he's a wonderful congressman, congressman from Texas, Republican, uh, strong conservative Republican, and uh, one of the uh, outstanding black Republican leaders who is now running for president, uh, spoke, it seems to me, importantly about uh, the Ukraine and the crisis there. Uh, this is a uh, Congressman Heard, presidential candidate. This is clip three. Um, if I was a president of the United States, the first thing I would say is as soon the day that hostilities stop in Ukraine, Ukraine will be admitted into NATO. Um, in order to bring that, um, that vision uh, to fruition, I would talk and explain that the goal in Ukraine is to help the Ukrainians kick the Russians out of all of Ukraine, not just go back to the way things were in February uh, 2022 uh, when the Russians evaded the most recent time. And I'd be working with our allies to make sure that the Ukrainians had all the material, all the equipment they need to do things like establish a no-fly zone um, over their own country. The quicker we help Ukraine win this war, the better it is for everybody else in the country. And I'll be making sure that the defense industrial complex uh, was improving its efficiency and delivering uh, the kind of support that we've already we've already said that we would give the Ukrainians uh, to make sure that they have the tools in order to win this. And why should every American care about this? Because mm -hmm. the United States of America after World War II built an international order that benefits us. And if we don't defend that order, mm -hmm. it hurts us. Uh, that's uh, Will Hurd, a uh, presidential candidate who deserves more attention and not just from this show. Uh, does a new movie deserve attention? It certainly has a stellar cast with some of the most beloved actresses of our time. Uh, Laura Linney is a star. Uh, so is Maggie Smith, Oscar winner. Uh, so is Kathy Bates, Oscar winner. The movie is set in uh, what seems to be a charming uh, village in Ireland. It is called The Miracle Club. Worth seeing? Listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. 
Laura Linney plays an American who returns to her Irish hometown to honor the death of her mother and then together with locals Maggie Smith and Kathy Bates goes on a pilgrimage to a sacred site in France where they will together solve some long ago mysteries in The Miracle Club. My mother is dead. I'm in a place I swore I would never come back to. Welcome to Lourdes. I'm glad you came home. Can you ever forgive me? Well, it's easy to forgive this movie's melodramatic sentimentality, especially with the handsome camera work that captures some of the magical, mystical impact of the Lourdes Cathedral. The lead actresses are not only competent, they are richly and deeply endearing, but the pacing is pokey, and the miracles in the story are hardly magical. It's rated PG-13 for adult themes involving troubled pregnancies of the past. Two and a half stars for The Miracle Club. And uh, next time on the Michael Medved Show, uh, we will be talking uh, about potential miracles uh, to resolve the struggle against Russian imperialism and aggression. We'll be speaking with futurist and uh, expert on international relations Ian Bremer, who was always provocative about the NATO summit, what it meant and about the future of Ukraine uh, once the war is resolved. Uh, Americans, it turns out, really did drink much more during the pandemic, and new data shows that. But uh, what about the alcohol-related deaths skyrocketing? What can we do about it? And uh, not debating is a bad-look strategy for both of the two leading candidates for president for Donald Trump, and yes, especially for Joe Biden. Uh, but what's the right